Good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Hey, my name is Garrison, and I'm uh, the pastor here at Veritas Dayton. This is your first time here. We're really, really glad that you're with us this morning. Welcome. Uh, So glad that you are with us. Hope that you feel welcome and loved and served this morning by our church family here at Veritas. Um, If you want to turn in your Bibles to Galatians 3, we're going to be looking at verses 19 to 22. And uh, this is a continuation in our series on Paul's letter to the Galatians. Um, If you haven't been with us up to this point, uh, some of what we're talking about might not be as familiar to you. So we'll try to to do a little bit of review as we go through. But uh, if you want to get kind of a fuller picture of of what is going on here in Paul's letter to the Galatians, you'll want to go back and listen to the sermons on our website or the podcast or uh, whatever. Um, We put those sermons online so you can listen to them there, uh, and that can kind of bring you abreast to to what is going on uh, with Paul, what's going on with the church in Galatia, so on and so forth. Um, If you don't have a Bible, you can grab uh, one of the white paperback Bibles at the edge of each bench. You can take that, turn to page 566, that'll get you where you need to go, Galatians 3, verses 19 to 22. If you don't have a Bible, take that one home, Uh, make it your own, we'd love for you to take that home, and that would be our gift to you uh, this morning. All right, let's dig into Galatians 3, 19 through 22. If you want to stand with me, out of reverence for God's word, let's listen with reverence and joy. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your word. And Lord, we thank you for the gift um, of the forgiveness of sins, of eternal life, of uh, resurrection life of justification in Christ, Lord. And and we ask that you would make that message clear here this morning, that you would uh, open our eyes, open our ears, soften our hearts to receive it, to hear it, to see it, to receive it this morning, Lord. Uh, We are are sinful. Uh, We are all sinful, but uh, I know that I am personally the, probably the worst sinner in this room. And so, um, Lord, we, we thank you Uh, for the justification that we receive in Christ. And uh, Lord, we thank you, um, Lord, that you use, that you save, that you use broken people to do your work. Lord, and so would you uh, make that clear? Would you help us uh, now to just collapse into the arms of Christ and to rest in his, uh, his work, his cross, his resurrection? Lord, and to just receive from him, simply receive from him with the empty hands of faith. Lord, let the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Run, John, run. The law commands, but gives neither feet nor hands. 
Better news the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Those words were written by the hymnist John Berridge. Uh, and what they're communicating in their wonderful and poetic way is exactly what we've been looking at for the last couple of months uh, as a church family here at Veritas on Sunday mornings. And what we've been looking at at this, what it's communicating is this, that if you really want to boil it down, there are two ways to live. You can live by law or you can live by grace. Or to use the language that the Apostle Paul has been using here in Galatians, in, in chapter 2, 15 through 21, uh, he says that you can live by works of the law or by faith in Jesus Christ. In chapter 3, uh, verses 1 to 6, he says that you can live by doing works of the law or by hearing with faith. Uh, in chapter 3, verses 7 to 14, he says that the result of living by the law is the curse of the law, and that the result of living by faith is the blessing of Christ in the gospel. And then last week, in verses 15 to 18, we saw that you can live by the law or by the promise. And uh, others in, in church history have used different words to talk about the same thing. Uh, Augustine said you can either live by the Spirit or uh, by the letter. Uh, you can live under Moses or under Christ, under Sinai or under Calvary. You can live by law or you can live by grace. And uh, Martin Luther once said that the one who can make a proper distinction between these two is a true student of the Bible. And that if we muddle these two together, if they get mixed up, Christianity is lost altogether. We must not confuse law and gospel. They're two distinct words that must remain distinct. The law is God saying, you shall, you, you shall. But the gospel, the promise is God saying, I will, I will, I will. The law says, get to work but the gospel says it is finished. The law accuses and curses and condemns, but the gospel forgives and blesses and justifies. The law is impotent to bring this blessing. It says run and work, but it doesn't give feet or hands. The gospel, though, brings the promise, brings the blessing. It, say, it says fly, and it gives us wings. And the Apostle Paul has communicated very clearly to the Galatians and subsequently to us that our, our standing before God, if we are in Christ, is not based on the law and our performance, but rather is based on the promise and, and on what he has done for us in Christ. That for those of you who through faith are in Christ Jesus, the word stamped on your forehead is accepted. The word stamped on your forehead is blessed, blessed with being counted righteous by the God of the universe. Your, your forehead is stamped with the word justified. You are justified in Christ. And remember our definition of justification that we've kind of been working from. Justification is God counting you righteous with the very righteousness of Christ by God's grace alone, through your faith alone, in and because of Christ alone. And this justification, this acceptance, is not, not affected in the slightest by your obedience or disobedience. It is not altered by your performance or contribution. The only thing you contribute to this great salvation that Christ has accomplished is the sin that made it necessary. Okay, that's, it's fully and completely Christ's work, his cross, his resurrection, his grace. You did nothing to contribute to it. And as Paul has communicated this, 
And as we have proclaimed this week in and week out, you've probably felt somewhat of a tension or, or a couple of questions arise in the back of your mind. If the gospel and the law are distinct, if, if they're not the same, and if, if we're fully and eternally accepted by God through uh, faith alone, not by works of the law, and the, and the law is, is impotent to bring this blessing, then two questions kind of come up. First of all, why was the law even given in the first place? Was the, is the law useless? And then secondly, you know, isn't God the one who gave the law to us? Is he contradicting himself by giving us the law and the gospel in his word? And how convenient that you're asking those questions because those are the questions that Paul asks in our text this morning. Okay, uh, so so if, if we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and not by works of the law, then the question that comes up in verse 19 is, why then the law? Why then the law? And then the question in verse 21, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And so rather than having two points this morning, we have two questions, uh, and, and we, we're going to answer those two questions. As we do, we'll find this, we'll find that this is our big idea for the morning, that the law drives us to Jesus for grace. The law drives us to Jesus for grace. So number one, why then the law? And number two, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Firstly, why then the law? Now, if we're justified by faith alone, through grace alone, is, is the law then useless? And uh, for anyone who has a high view of, of Scripture, this would be an intolerable conclusion. Uh, the, the law is very, very important. The law uh, is very useful. The apostle thinks so as well. Maybe you've heard of what's often called uh, the three uses of the law. Maybe not. Maybe you have... Uh, but if you're not familiar, many have pointed out that the moral commands in Scripture are used in three distinct ways. Uh, the first use of the law is what's often called the, the civil use. Uh, commandments like you shall not murder and you shall not steal are, are used by governing authorities under the threat of consequence to keep order in society. So there's the civil use of the law. And the second use of the law, the law functions in a way that, in that it reveals sin and accuses us sinners so that we run to Christ for grace. It reveals our need for the saving work of Jesus. That's the second use of the law. And then the third use of the law and, th and this way, in the third use of law, it kind of functions like a, like a household uh, code. Uh, in the third use, it, it functions like a set of family rules for those already lovingly accepted into the family of God with God as their father. And, and, and when you enter into this family, your, your identity, your acceptance isn't based on obeying these commandments, but, but rather you're obeying them because you've been accepted. Your, your, your obedience is based on your acceptance into the family of God. So those are, are what we call the three uses of the law. But here in our text this morning, Paul focuses in on the second use of the law, the spiritual use. The law reveals our sinfulness and accuses us. And, and I think that you'll find in the New Testament that while the other two uses are definitely present, this seems, this seems to be the, the chief use of the law. This seems to be the drum that is beat most often. The law accuses and condemns and curses and kills sinners like us, and it always does this. Paul says as much when he answers this first question, why then the law? He answers it first by saying, it was added because of transgressions. It was added because of transgressions. 
Now, the underlying assumption here is that we're the kind of people that commit transgressions, okay? That, that we're the kind of people that need these commandments because we're the kind of people that commit transgressions. Or in other words, uh, because transgressions is not really a word that we use a whole lot. Uh, we live as rebels against God and his good design. We live as rebels. We do wicked and evil things. You and I have sinned against the holy and just God that created us for his glory. We've rebelled against him and his purposes. And, and that's what this text assumes about us. But then the question is, what did the law then come to do about our transgressions? It was added because of transgressions, but what does, that, what does that mean? Does that mean that it came to restrain sin and to keep us from being worse? Uh, does, does it mean that the law came to correct us and get us on the right course? Or, or like the Galatians were believing, did the law come along after the promise because the promise wasn't enough and it needed kind of this supplement of the law? None of that really gets at what Paul is getting at here. What Paul is getting at here, he's saying the law came because of, for the sake of, is another way to translate this, for the sake of transgressions. And so what he's basically saying is what he also said in Romans 5.20. I think he says it a little bit more clearly here. But he, somebody best, uh, once said that, that Romans is actually the best commentary on Galatians. So if you want to uh, get like a good commentary on Galatians, you, you have one in your Bible. It's the book of Romans. And, and so Paul says, in, in what he says in Romans 5.20, it really explains what he's saying here. He said in Romans 5.20 that the law came to increase the trespass. So Brian just read that for us earlier. The law came to increase sins. It came to increase transgressions. It came to multiply, to, to stimulate sin. Okay, so one purpose of the law is not to prevent sin, but to provoke it. I know that seems counterintuitive. So, so not only does the law not help our justification before God, it actually makes matters worse. Not only does the law not end sin, not only does it not create new life within us, it increases and provokes sin. No matter how much religious pressure is added with the law, sin grows and grows and grows when the law is added. But now just to clarify, this does not mean that the law is at fault for our transgressions. The law isn't what creates sinfulness within us. Rather, the way that it increases transgressions is that it draws out the sinfulness that's already within our wicked hearts. The, the impurity is already there. The law draws it out. It draws out the sinfulness that's already present so that it's manifested in our behavior, so that our inner sinfulness becomes outward sins, that our rebellion becomes transgressions, that, our inward, that the inward reality of our hearts is revealed in our thoughts and words and actions and behavior through the law. We actually have a beautiful example of this from the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans of how this takes place. He uses the, the 10th commandment, you shall not covet, as an example. In Romans 7, you can turn there. Uh, Paul is unpacking this, this scandalous statement that the law increases trespasses, and, and he shows us how this is the case. He's starting with verse 7 in chapter 7 of Romans. He says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. 
For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, Paul's saying, I was ignorant of my own sinfulness. It was lying within me without my knowing it, but the law came and it cut me open and revealed to me the ugliness of my heart. It revealed to me that I am wicked and rebellious and that I, 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 the very thing that God told me not to do, the very thing that God condemned is exactly what I do. And not only do I do it, but I want to do it. I want to do the thing that God told me not to do and that he condemned. The law, then, does not end sin. We're so desperately wicked. The law does not end sin. It does not cleanse us. It draws out the sinfulness that is already within us and thereby reveals our sinful hearts. We're, We're dead inside. Zombies walking around, spiritually dead, enslaved to sin, hating God, hating others, deserving His wrath, and condemned to hell for eternity apart from His saving grace. The law increases transgressions. And you know, I think that the worst way that this takes place is in religious communities, like this one. Notice that the Apostle Paul is writing this letter to the Galatians, and he's, he's angry. Like, he's calling them foolish, and, and he's, he's, he's saying all sorts of crazy things. Not, not because the Galatians have given themselves to sinful behaviors, not because they've been doing bad things, but because they've taken the law of God and tried to use it for their self-justification project. This is one way, maybe the worst way, that the law increases transgressions and increases trespasses in our lives. When we take God's law and we use it for a purpose for which it was to never be used, to try to justify ourselves before God through it, to, to try to earn, to try to merit, to try to earn his acceptance, to try to make ourselves acceptable to him. Using the commandments in this way is a stench to the nostrils of God. Using the law in this way fails to take into consideration what Paul goes on to say in verses 19 to 20. So the law was added because of transgressions, as we, as we just saw. So it's, so it's useful, right? It's, it's useful. It reveals transgressions, and it, and it shows us our sinfulness, but it's limited in its usefulness. He says it was added only until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So while in one sense God's law is eternal because it's based on the character of God himself, in another sense the law is temporary. God gave the law under the administration of Moses to set up, and he set up his, his hourglass, and, and when that thing funneled through, when the sand funneled through, it was finished. All the sacrifices, all the ceremonies, and the curses were finished. In the timeline of redemptive history, the law is finished. 
It was put in place to prepare God's people for the gospel of Jesus Christ that was promised back in Genesis. So its usefulness is, is limited there, but its usefulness is, is also, uh, its limited usefulness is, is also demonstrated by the way that, uh, uh, in the way that it was given. Paul continues to write in verse 19, it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Now, if you don't know this, that is a very confusing text. That's a very confusing verse. Uh, the one scholar in his commentary said that there are over 300 interpretations of that single verse alone. It's an odd thing. Um, but after careful study, it seems to me that the best way to make sense of what Paul is doing here is that he's continuing his argument for the limited usefulness of the law. And the way that he's doing that is by saying this. When, when the law was given, God did not give it directly to his people. Rather, he gave it to angels that gave it to Moses, the intermediary. That's, Moses is the intermediary uh, being talked about here, who then gave it to God's people. So apparently it would have been common for Jews and, and probably the Judaizers in that day to be absolutely fascinated by the role of angels in the giving of the law to Moses. They, they would have seen the role of angels in this giving of the law as something that, that propped up the importance and the eternal nature of the law. But in Paul's view, the exact opposite is true. When comparing how the law came to how the promise of the gospel came, the law is at the disadvantage here. Paul is demonstrating here the, super, the superiority of the promise over the law, which, if you remember, is what we talked about at length last week. So he's, he's, doing, he's showing the contrast of how the law and how the promise were given. He's, the promise was given directly by God. God was the sole actor. God is one, and he was the sole actor in the promise being given to Abraham, the promise of the gospel. He spoke it to Abraham directly. But the law was given through angels, and then through Moses, and then to God's people. So I, th I think what he's saying here, the difference would be like having uh, someone wanting to write a letter to you, wanting to communicate something to you. And the way that they choose to communicate it is through having a scribe jot down their thoughts and then they send it through the postal service so that it then arrives at the post office and you go to the post office to pick the letter up and then uh, go home and read it. It's not a very intimate way of communication. And he's contrasting that from someone sitting down and having a, a conversation with you face to face. So there's all these mediators in the giving of the law, but when the gospel, when the promise came, God descends to meet with us face to face. So the big point here is that the law, it's useful, it's most certainly useful, but it's limited in its usefulness. It had a limited function for a limited time. The, the promise of the gospel, though, takes precedence, and it's primary. It's the way that we're reconciled to God and have peace with Him. It's in Christ. And now again, the more that Paul talks about the law, the more we're likely to misunderstand and, and think that the law is bad, I feel like. And so the second question that arises, he keeps just asking the best questions. He's reading our minds. That's the best questions. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And he gives us an answer. No way, Jose. No, sir. By no means, he says. 
As he just said, God is one. God is unified in being, and God's word is an extension of himself to us. Therefore, his word as an extension of God to us cannot contradict itself. The law is is not contrary to the gospel promise. And then he gives two examples of how the law and the gospel are harmonious. They work together beautifully. He gives two reasons that the law and the promise are not contrary to one another. First, he says, the law is not at all opposed to the promise because it was given for a completely different purpose. They were not given given for the same reason. He says, for if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law, right? This This is the death blow to the Judaizers' claims. They were claiming that righteousness was given through the law and that life was given through the law. And and, and in fact, a a common quote that was kind of floating around Israel at that time in those days was, if one has understood the law, understood the Torah, then they have gotten themselves eternal life. So all you got to do is kind of get, get, understand, and obey the Torah, and then you have eternal life. And indeed, the, the theory is true enough. But remember, when, when we looked at a few weeks ago, Galatians 3.12, Paul says, the one who does them shall live by them, right? So the law only offers life to those who can keep the law completely. It only gives life to those who fulfill it perfectly. And the only one who has ever kept the law and thought, word, and deed, the only one who has kept himself clean is Jesus Christ. He's the righteous one. Therefore, none of us not me, not you, will be justified by the law. And again, this is not the law's fault. The law is good, but we are not. And because we're not, the law reveals sin within us and condemns us before God. Now, sometimes the law is compared to like a mirror. Uh, A mirror can reveal that your face is dirty, but it cannot make your face clean. You don't rub the mirror all over your face trying to get your face to stop being nasty. Your face is is just nasty, and and the mirror is not going to help your nasty face. But neither neither will it do any good to to break the mirror and to throw it away. You don't don't break the mirror and throw it into the trash can because then it's not actually going to make your face clean. It's just you're not going to have to look at your nasty face anymore. But rather, the purpose of the mirror is to cause you to run to water for cleansing, right? And that's exactly what Paul says the law does. And the second reason that the law isn't contrary to the promise. He says, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the scriptures... In the giving of the law, imprisoned everything under sin. The the law chains us up and imprisons us in our sin and increases transgressions. It it locks us up and it throws away the key, but only until Christ comes and he kicks the door down and he achieves the ultimate jailbreak in his life and death and resurrection. The law was given to lead us to Christ and to carry us to Christ. John Murray once wrote, The law can do nothing to justify the person who in particular has violated its sanctity and come under its curse. Law 
as law has no cleansing provision. It exercises no forgiving grace. It has no power of enablement to the fulfillment of its own demand. It knows no mercy for the remission of guilt. It provides no righteousness to meet our iniquity. It exerts no constraining power to reclaim our waywardness. It knows no mercy to melt our hearts in penitence and new obedience. It can do nothing to relieve the bondage of sin. But here's the thing. What the law could not do, Christ Jesus did. And in doing it, he did it all. And the law drives us to him. So justification, he drives us to him for justification, for cleansing provision, for forgiving grace, to enable new obedience, for the remission of guilt. Christ provides perfect righteousness that overwhelms and covers our iniquity. His mercy melts our hearts in penitence and new obedience. He relieves us from the bondage of sin, and he does all this and more simply through faith in him. And the law Although it does none of, it, none of this in itself, it was given to drive us to Christ for these unspeakable gifts. This is actually also what verse 19 was getting at when Paul says that the law was added because of transgressions. The word added there means like a, like a side road or an on-ramp. The, 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 side, the, the on-ramp that helps you get on the road that you need to get on. Uh, like when you're getting on 35 Uh, The the law is the on-ramp that helps you get on the highway of grace. The law leads you to Christ. Calvin said in his sermon on this text, Moses had no other intention than to invite all men to go straight to Christ. He invites us. The law invites us. Moses invites us. Sinai invites us to go straight to Christ. So are the law and the promise contrary? No, no way. They work gloriously together. They work harmoniously together. The law shows us our sin so that in seeing it, we may be humbled and worn down. And in our humbled and worn down state, we collapse into the arms of Jesus for grace. The law drives us to the end of our rope and to the end of ourselves, but it's there where Jesus meets us. I heard someone say this week that Christ's office is at the end of your rope. That's where he meets you. That's where you meet with Christ, at the end of your rope. It drives us to Christ for grace and mercy and forgiveness, of which he is infinitely full. So earlier we read Romans 5.20, and we saw that the law increased transgressions. But listen to what Paul goes on to say. Now the law came to increase the trespass, But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, grace might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace abounds all the more because there's more grace in him than there is sin in us. Amen. So how can we live in light of this wonderful reality? I would say this, to sum it up, let the law have its place, but live in the gospel. Live in the promise. Let the law have its place, but live in the promise. You know, when the law comes and accuses you, don't don't flee from the accusation. Embrace the accusation. 
You know, don't run away. Don't, don't distract yourself with Netflix or Instagram or, or some sort of entertainment or, or with uh, work or, or tons of activities. Don't distract yourself. Embrace the accusation. When you hear the laws accusing and convicting words, realize that you are a sinner and that you are in need of salvation and confess those things to the Lord. Embrace the accusation. Let the law have its place. But don't stay there. Live in the gospel. Don't sit and grovel. Don't stay focused on your sin and inadequacy. J.C. Ryle summed it up best. He said, for every look at yourself, take 10 looks at Christ. Turn your gaze off yourself. Fix your eyes on Jesus who has fulfilled the law and silenced its condemning words. That's why the law was given in the first place, to get your eyes off of yourself and on to Christ who bore the curse of the law on the cross for you. And he rose again over the curse of the law so that you can receive the blessing of resurrection life. There's no need to stay there. There's no need to stay there embracing the, the accusation. And so often, you know, in my conversations with some of you guys, I'll meet with some of you and, and I'll ask how, how things are going and, and you're just living under the accusation. You're living under the accusation. I ask how things are going. You immediately go, well, things aren't great. My quiet time hasn't been the best. My, my prayer life hasn't been the best. My scripture memory has fallen behind. I haven't been sharing the gospel as much as I should have been sharing the gospel. My, 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 my Bible reading has fallen behind. Or some of you, when I ask how things are going, you, you go straight to your productivity, my to-do list, my, my productivity at work or at home. It's, it's not been great. Or it could be anything else. When you lie down at night, lay your head down on the pillow, what either gives your conscience peace or what disturbs your conscience? What either gives you peace or disturbs you? Are you what you produce with the work of your hands, whether it be your spiritual disciplines or your productivity or how others are viewing you, or even if it's your obedience to God's good and perfect law, if that's what you're finding, your consolation, and you are standing on sinking sand, Rather, what if, what if when we asked one another, how are things going? Instead of immediately going to the quality of our quiet times, our to-do list, whatever else, what if instead of going there, we go, things are great. I am in Christ. I'm seated at the right hand of God, and God's smile is on me, and he has called me blessed. He has called me righteous. I, I am good with the God of the universe. So everything is wonderful. Because listen, because of what Christ has done, the truest thing about you now is not uh, your, your sinfulness, is not your obedience, your disobedience. What the truest thing about you now is Christ, the Christ who you have been united to through faith. The truest thing about you now is what God says about you. And what God says about you is that you are righteous in Christ Jesus. You are forgiven and accepted. That is the truest thing about you, Christ and all of his beauty and goodness and glory and perfection. We're in him and there's more righteousness in him than there is sin in us. So let the law do what it was given to do and this is what it was given to do, to drive you to Christ for grace. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Lord, we, we need to hear the law's accusing words, yes, 
but we need you to help us live in the gospel. Lord, to live in that place of resting on Christ, trusting in Christ, rest, throwing ourselves on him, belly flopping onto him with all of our fears and shames and onto him with all of his promises and grace and forgiveness. Lord, would you give us a feeling sense of that justification, of that forgiveness now? Lord, we ask that you would bless this time of receiving the Lord's Supper together. Would you help us to commune with you, to enjoy you, to taste and see that you're good? Lord, we need you. Would you help our eyes to behold Jesus, to rest in him? In Jesus' name, amen.